0: Hello and welcome to the 4 Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusick and this week my very special guest is Ryan Moore. After having a hugely successful amateur career in winning the NCAA Individual Championship, the U.S. Amateur Public Links, and the U.S. Amateur in 2004, Ryan turned pro and has now won five times on the PGA Tour. He was also a member of the 2016 Ryder Cup team where he scored the winning point to clinch the cup for the United States. Ryan and I had an opportunity to sit down and chat before a PXG event in Scottsdale, Arizona last week. And we talked about what it feels like for him now to be 36 and to no longer be the young gun, but playing with young guns. Guys like Colin Morikawa, Matthew Wolf, and Victor Hovland. We also talked about what it's like to bring your kids out on tour. He and his wife have now have three kids, and uh, they have to make some sacrifices and very special arrangements when you have a brood like that and you're heading out on tour. We talked about what what it's like basically also for field players, guys who aren't bombers, and how you can be successful on the PGA Tour, on today's modern tour, with a style like that. And of course, we also talked about slow play. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Ryan Moore. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with golf forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Backbook, Dr. Jeremy James. Golf Forever is the Take Anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body primed for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. So I'd like to welcome Ryan Moore to the Forward Press Podcast. Ryan, good morning, and uh, welcome to lovely Scottsdale, Arizona. We're here at um, Scottsdale National Golf Club. Welcome. Oh, thank you. And happy, to, happy to be on. Where did you come in from? Uh, I saw you sort of slink. Actually, slinking is a wrong word. That's got banning. You <laughs> quietly made your way through a dinner last night after you arrived. Yeah, I just came in from Vegas, so it was actually a pretty easy trip. And um, you were kidless at this point. You're flying solo. And mm-hmm. from what you were telling me before we started up... Uh, there have been changes over the last few months to the family. Can you explain and tell people what's going on?
1: Uh, yeah, we had our uh, we had our third child, a little girl, uh, August first. So she's nine weeks or so right now. Mm-hmm. So. Right in that stage where, uh, you know, dad gets a few smiles. So you actually feel like you exist a little bit to them. Mm -hmm. Um, but she also smiles at the ceiling fans just as much as she smiles at me. So I don't know if there's really any, anything to it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, every kid there's an adjustment, but, uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate. We have three very healthy kids and, uh, she's doing great and mom's doing great. And, uh, You know
0: just adjusting to life as a family of five now family family life so you've got two boys that are older than that um Mm -hmm. how has starting a family changed your life inside and outside the ropes i can understand outside the ropes i have two kids of my own Mm -hmm. um and at the nine week mark sleep is a pretty precious commodity for everybody especially for Mm -hmm. mom but if baby's not happy and not sleeping and not into a routine then nobody is how is how has that affected you
1: uh well i mean it's it's different it's been different with each uh with each kid but uh you know on on the road honestly we figured out pretty early on that uh they just get their own room and i get my own Mm -hmm. room because the reality is i gotta wake up at four four thirty in the morning half the time for a seven or seven thirty a a am tea time so uh you know i need to sleep I can't be uh, getting and, woken up all night. And your wife
0: needs the kids to sleep when they're on the road, too. The last thing that they want to do is have everybody's day start at 5.15 when Dad's leaving.
1: Exactly. And and also, like, stressed my wife out, like, trying to, like, you know, keep them quiet and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, right. in the end, it for all of us, it just kind of worked out better to, you know, for at least a couple nights a week. Just, I can go sleep in another room and <laughs> do what I need to do to get rest and, and go perform that week. I mean, the reality is I, I need to feel good and I need to go perform. So mm-hmm. I, I need sleep for that.
0: So the saying goes that one is like one having two is like having 10. And now <laughs> you guys are outnumbered. Yeah. Um, how, how would you anticipate if there are other parents that are out on tour other people that you've witnessed or observed? What What are sort of the tips or tricks to sort of managing a brood as it gets to be that size? I would imagine at some point, Um, Not everybody's going to be going on the road. You're you're going to be going to Asia in a couple weeks. And so that one, I'm assuming you're going to fly solo on that. But what, what are some things that you have learned or observed that are going to help you try and keep everybody's sanity and keep you playing good golf?
1: Ah, uh, that's a good question. I, uh, maybe I'll have a better answer for you here in a, in a, in a few months after we get back the ba- past the baby, baby stage. But mm-hmm. yeah, we, we've done one trip. We went to Napa a couple of weeks ago and, and honestly wasn't too bad. Uh, you know, traveling with three car seats, that's a bit tricky. Yeah. Uh, we're pretty minimal people. We don't travel with a bunch of extra stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, all these pack and plays and all that kind of stuff. So, uh we keep that to a minimum but it still just starts adding up like even just going to the airport now like i'm looking into like 12 passenger vans that i need to buy just to get to the airport because even minimal gear you've got gear exactly i have a massive set of golf clubs we have this huge car seat bag that fits three car seats in i mean it takes up like half the back (laughs) of our suburban um so you know looking into those kind of things is uh it's definitely been different
0: um it occurred to me the other day, I was taking a look at some pairing sheets and you and I discussed this a little bit before we started hitting the record button that, um, you, you had an opportunity to play with Colin Morikawa and you said that you were obviously impressed and many people have been impressed. And I was at the travelers championship back, uh, last summer. That's a home game for me. You were there. And the PGA tour held a press conference before that tournament started. And they had Colin there and Justin saw Victor Hovland and Matthew Wolf. And you know it's it's something where like the the marketing machines start churning when they think that there's new guys and new personalities and you don't really sort of know what's going to happen with those guys um 15 years ago coming off of your 2004 amateur season which was about as big as it gets if you're not named Tiger Woods for what you would accomplish and you do accomplish some really special things um NCAA championship you know obviously the USAM the the uh um God, why am I blanking out? The other one that you won, that year, I won the, the, pub the, the Publings. Exactly. the Western Am, yeah. Well. I mean, you knocked all these things. Has it yeah. occurred to you when you look at these guys that that it's been a decade and a half since that that happened and that was you up there?
1: Uh, you know, it's one of those one of those things. Uh, sometimes I feel like I've been on tour for twenty five years, and sometimes it feels like five years. Uh, mm-hmm. It depends on the week, and it depends on what port, what point in the season how exhausted you are, how much, uh, you've been traveling. But, uh, no, I mean, it is, it is pretty crazy how, how quickly it goes by and, uh, you know, to see those young kids coming out. And, uh, honestly, it's, it's impressing me just how I think it shows the development at a younger age and just the knowledge. I was kind of explaining this to to someone the other day, like why I think these kids are coming out ready to play. And I, I just think the development and I think the, the knowledge and understanding of what it takes and I also don't think, I think because of media and social media and how much it's grown, there's not a lot of mystery to it anymore. Well, I wanted they to ask They know you what about to that. expect now coming out. They've seen right. it. They're exposed. It, the, you, you get immersed in it if you want to, and you get to really know what it's going to be. Like, it's not a shock to them. When, we, we when see, I turn pro, we it was a shock.
0: Com- right. We see them coming a mile away at this mm-hmm. point. If you're a really elite junior player and you're 14, 15 years old, you have most likely some level of social media following Um, we, it's so much easier to follow just Mm -hmm. the results of these events, to follow AGG events, to follow, you know, not just junior worlds, but if that's a world Mm -hmm. you choose to get into, it's so much easier. Is it harder? Do you think for them at this point? I mean, there are certain advantages, you know, from a technology standpoint, from a fitness standpoint, from a travel standpoint, maybe, is it harder or easier for them at this point to, to make that transition from being an elite junior player, amateur player, into the professional ranks than it was for you? Or do you think you had it maybe a little bit easier in that regard than they did?
1: Uh, I personally think it's a little easier now. Okay. I, I just think the, the development at the amateur level and collegiate level is honestly 10 times better than it was when I was in school, you mm-hmm. know, 15, 16 years ago. Um, I just, like, I, like I said, just the knowledge and of what it takes. I think the college coaches are just getting better. The facilities are getting better um the competition's better so when you're again coming out it's not as much of a shock and it's not as much of a mystery of Mm -hmm. what you know when i was turning pro like i didn't know what to expect i just kind of like showed it at a tournament it's like okay now i'm playing a PJ tour event right and i got to figure this all out when you show up now you know exactly what it is and what to expect because of social media Mm -hmm. because of the exposure there is um so yeah I, i would actually say it's a i mean you still got to play good golf and the competition sure. has gotten more difficult. Absolutely. The, the depth of competition. Uh, I mean, I'd say it's changed as much in the last five years as it mm-hmm. changed in my first 10 years. Interesting. Kind of thing. Like okay. it's just getting that much harder and that much more difficult in the scores you have to shoot every single week. Um, so in that regard, maybe not easier, but I just think the comfort level coming out, uh, I think you feel like you belong. If you mm-hmm. know, if you've been a high level collegiate player, Um, I think you just know because you've seen guys right before you come out Mm -hmm. and have success that, you know, you're ready to go play.
0: So when you arrived on the PGA Tour, were there other players that were out there who you had played with at UNLV or was because I know there's certain guys like the University of Georgia has a ton of guys and there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of guys from Florida. Texas has a bunch and obviously Oklahoma State and such like that. But UNLV, I think of you, I think of Adam Scott. But I think that he's out on tour before you, or is he yeah. around that?
1: No, he was, he was a few years before me. That was what I thought. So was, mm-hmm.
0: were there any other people? Were there people who came back to the program and talked to you guys about that kind of thing? I know that, for example, Ricky Fowler has made a point of going back to Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. And he and Victor Hovland developed, for example, a relationship mm-hmm. you know that, that they had known each other for several years before Victor turned pro. Was, was there anybody like that for you? It sounds like no.
1: I mean, there was a little bit of that, but again, it just wasn't as common. It wasn't as, as normal mm-hmm. as it is, uh, these days. So, uh, I mean, Adam was out there, but he didn't have a close affiliation to the program. He mm-hmm. left, he left a bit early. And, uh, so I mean, never really saw him. Uh, Charlie Hoffman, uh, was, was on the web, I believe when I was, mm-hmm. uh, or cornfield Whatever it was me. at that point. Uh, I- yeah. At that point I just might've been Nike. <laughs> um, uh, he was out there, and he was kind of that borderline, like about to get on tour. And I think mm-hmm. we got on tour around the same time, but he was a couple of years ahead of me mm-hmm. uh, as far as like leaving school. So that we had a few guys that w- that would come back. Chris Riley at the time actually, yeah, was on tour and playing pretty well. He'd come back and talk to us. But again, I, I just think it's a comfort level because of media and social media exposure um, of just you just know what a PJ tour event is like before mm-hmm. you get there because you get fully immersed and there's so many things and so many you know just the small PJ tour media stuff that they do throughout the week it kind of makes you see
0: what a, a real week on tour is. it's it's a machine that some people maybe aren't quite aware of when was the point in your junior career or whatever when when you realized you could turn pro and this this could not just be something you might dream about doing but it was probably going to be a reality um I mean, the point for me where I
1: decided I thought I was going to pursue golf, at mm-hmm. least more than anything else. I played lots of sports going up, you know, baseball, basketball, soccer. Um, golf was always like, I wouldn't say my side thing. I was, mm-hmm. I was always something i good at, but I, I liked other sports more at different mm-hmm. times. I liked basketball more for a while. I liked baseball more for a while. And, and that was probably by season, you know, in the winter. I grew up in, you know, the Seattle area, so... The winter golf was not really an option. Not really an uh, option. No, from I mean, Syracuse New York, I can yeah, relate. Yeah, <laughs> you could you could hit balls a little bit. You could get a nine in here and there when the course wasn't too frozen because we didn't get a lot of snow. But it was just cold. It wasn't it was pleasant not, to not be out nice there, to sure. be outside. Yeah. So, um, but at around 15, I was a freshman in high school. I went to a very small private school, but uh, I got to play for the big local, you know, for a big mm-hmm. high school uh, because my school didn't have a team. So I just basically played for the team or the school mm-hmm. that i would have gone to um i remember i played baseball all spring i literally never played golf like leading up to it because our mm-hmm. i played in the fall golf but then we had to wait the other half of the state played spring golf so we had mm-hmm. to wait till spring to play our state tournament mm-hmm. so it was a little bit strange um and so i played baseball all spring as a, as a freshman and I think I got to hit balls a couple times leading up to the tournament. I mean, I I think really I wouldn't played 18 holes um, the day before the tournament as a practice round. Right. And that might've been the only 18 holes I'd played for three or four months leading up to it. And I I went out and shot 68, the first round um, as a freshman Mm -hmm. and was leading the tournament by, I don't know, two, three, four, something like that. Um, And then the next day though, the rest caught up to me and I think I shot 76 or something how that works
0: sometimes when you put the clubs away for a while it's almost like your your body and your your mind forget the bad habits that maybe you would ingrain Mm -hmm. and you go out and you shoot great and then all of a sudden things kick in and oh yeah there's there's that yeah and uh that's that's that still can work out I would imagine to this day when you take an extended rest do you find sometimes that something that you may not have even realized was there goes away in your game and you come back Maybe it's just more of a mental thing. You're more refreshed and eager.
1: Yeah, it kind of I I've, I've had both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Um where you take some time off and just kind of let things be. And and I, I think it's like a, I have to assess where I'm at mm-hmm. to whether I think that's a good thing or whether I need to kind of power through and and work on things like this. This last off-season I just I took 5 weeks of well, off-season. I took 5 weeks off between the playoffs <laughs> yeah. and then the start of the fall off-season. Uh, I mean, technically that's an off season these days. It's my first off season, uh, of the year, but you know, this year I felt like I I had things I needed to work on. Like I I felt like I I had an idea of what I wanted to do and what I needed to work on where last year's off season, I kind of felt like, you know, I was kind of burnt out. I was Mm -hmm. tired. Like, I'm just like, I just need to put the clubs away for a few weeks I'm gonna show up at Napa and see what happens. I ended up losing in a playoff last year in Napa, right? Yeah. After taking several weeks off and not really hitting any golf balls, and this year I actually practiced a lot and worked hard towards it, and I missed the cut. Um, golf is the know, stupidest it's game it's, in the world, isn't it's it? It's very, very, very strange. But so, I mean, you kind of, have to, for me, it's assessing where I'm at, where I'm at mentally, mm-hmm. and what I feel like, and and what I need to accomplish in that in that time period. So, But I, then I, I went and played last week the Shriners, and my game probably felt the best it's felt in years. I just kind of needed to get the rest off the first week, sort through a couple of things, figure out what was working, what wasn't working, mm-hmm. and then kind of go down the path of um, working on maybe the right things for these uh, these next few weeks. So I'm really excited now because of that work I did. Didn't play great that first right. week, but I feel like my game's in a much better place. Um, okay. Instead of, I played good in Napa last year and it was almost a, a one off. It was just mm-hmm. like, whoa. It was almost like I an just, adoration that yeah, that it was happened. I was mentally it
0: refreshed,
1: did. made a few putts, and, you know, it's a good golf course for me. So I just kind of happened to play good. Then I went and played terrible the next few weeks after it. So
0: golf is the dumbest thing. I want to go is. back actually to a little bit about what you were saying in high school where you played a little bit of baseball and some basketball mm-hmm. and soccer. I think there's a <clears throat> beautiful thing about audio editing, they'll be able to take that right out. But (laughs) I think that there's still, even though more and more research comes out saying that for, for kids that you should play lots of sports, you should do lots of games. There's a temptation um, for parents to think my son or daughter is 14 or 15. We need to be all in on golf or all in on basketball or whatever Mm -hmm. it's going to be. There's oceans of research coming out saying that that's actually not the case that it's that the specialization should probably take place later you know, mm-hmm. in life. How much do you sort of look back and maybe at the time you weren't consciously thinking those things, but do you look back and realize, yeah, it was really good that I played baseball? Or you could make an argument that you showed up at that state tournament and you were rusty and hadn't played quite as much golf looking back on it now, but playing basketball in the winter was probably a good thing long term. Do you, do you sort of buy in on that or do you think that at some point, you know, you've, you've got to sort of really just sort of specialize in and to some degree, the earlier the better for a specific sport like golf, where it's it's so special in what it what it demands of people.
1: Uh, I mean for me, I I'm on board with playing as many sports as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm going to encourage my kids uh, to play now if they if it was their decision and they decided that mm-hmm. that's really what they want to do and they just really like this one sport and they want to spend most of their time on it then that's fine and that's what i did when i was about 15 right after that state tournament yep. i was talking about like i kind of realized those other sports were taking up time that i could be using on golf and clear as a freshman as a 15 year old i'm going out and beating all the best 17 18 year olds in the state after not even playing golf for three months so maybe i should focus on this and it was a decision that i made to like hey let's go down this road but I mean, I remember after after every baseball season I would play, I mean, I gained 10 to 12 yards. Like, it made me more powerful. I mean, mm-hmm. rotational sport is a rotational sport. It's the same muscles. It's a slightly different plane. But anybody that says, oh, baseball going to ruin your golf swing, that's complete and utter nonsense.
0: I hope my son Charlie Dusick is listening to that because he loves <laughs> to play baseball. And he's always been really concerned that if he starts to play golf, that it's going to be something that louses up his swing. And I agree that... But- Rotational speed that he actually gets from baseball is an advantage. I I don't know if you've ever been up to Lake Tahoe for that tournament that they have with the. Mm. So I went up a couple of years ago, and the guys who really are some of the best players are the hockey players, right. and they. I, I had a chance to play with Mario Lemieux once, and he really moves it. I mean that mm-hmm. ball is just flying, and he has such an awareness of where the club face is throughout his swing. And that's no accident. I mean, if you're going to hit a slap shot, if you're going to have a wrist shot or be able to pass a puck, you have to understand where this flat surface is meeting this round puck and be able to control that. And once he gets, I would imagine, a few basic principles, like, okay, like the hit down to go up and all the other things that sort of goof out every other player, gets past that, all that training and all of that specialization that he had for hockey comes beautifully into golf. And yeah, I think there's that stigma that it's it. It doesn't work, but it really does, doesn't it?
1: I I, I think it does. Um, it was my experience uh, growing up, and I had no zero negative effects on me. Mm-hmm. You know, my golf swing didn't affect my baseball swing. My baseball swing didn't affect my golf swing in a negative way. You know, playing basketball all the winter was great conditioning for me. To keep you in good shape and keep you moving. Um, so yeah, for me, it was it was. It was definitely a, a huge positive and i'm going to encourage my kids to play as much stuff as possible and if there's i mean it's kind of ridiculous these days like some of the stuff i hear about like you know if you play on a club team you can't play on your high school team mm-hmm. if you, all all of this stuff and i'm just like come on there you're making professionals athletes out of 14 and 15 year olds Like, yeah. calm down they're not professional athletes yet yep. let them go live let them have fun this is a sport this is great and but if they're going to be great at it they're going to decide to be great at it on their own yeah that's the reality that's that was my and that's what i'm going to encourage my kids i'm not going to make them play. if you know what they don't want to play golf mm-hmm. i have no problem with that they want to learn how to play guitar and play the piano more i have zero problem with that but if it's their decision, then they're going to be good Their, their own self-motivations exactly. are going to push
0: them to to go into it as much as they choose to do it. Um, when you first came out, you were, by my estimation, so you're now arriving on the PGA Tour 2005, 2006, early in your career, were really, at least by reputation, thought of as a great field player, that, that you would come out and you weren't somebody that was going to hit it like Tiger or John Daly. I'm trying to go back because times yeah. have changed with the players and yeah. the way. Yeah. Does, does the game that you came out of UNLV with and that you had so much success with translate now? If you were a, a player coming out of college, could that type of game going into 2020 now work and be successful on the PGA Tour as it is today? Or has the distance power game created such an environment, the way the courses are set up now, to seemingly reward that? would your game have translated to the way that the environment is today in professional golf?
1: Uh, yes. Yes, it would have because I, I think there's still a place in golf for a well-rounded golf game that doesn't mm-hmm. rely solely on one aspect um, to for performance. So uh there, there's so many facets to golf there's so many different ways you can score mm-hmm. that i don't think that style of golf will ever go away mm-hmm. now it might not be able to dominate like it could have in the early 90s or late 80s type you know game where guys that actually i'm going to say that play golf properly which mm-hmm. might some we know people, what you mean no. some no, people I mean- might take offense to that but you know Play golf, probably hit fairways, you know, control think, your game, I, control I think your that's curvature. Fair. No, I think that's totally miss fair. Miss in the right spots. You know, that type of golf is definitely going away. And the type of golf that kids are coming out of college is just
0: send it over everything. Hopefully you well, hit and, half the fairways
1: a day, but it doesn't matter because you're hitting wedges half the time and, mean, and you're we're, reaching we're, every par five. We're,
0: we're starting so. to hear some pushback on, on that type of golf being successful and basically creating courses that become boring or are set up in such a way that it's not necessarily that it's too easy, but all of a sudden you have to shoot 20 under 22, 23 under too many times, not just when you're playing, for example, out in Palm Springs where like it's no wind, it's perfect conditions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like we know that the scores are going to go low, but scores are going lower and lower and you're starting to get pushed back. Rory McIlroy made some comments that he sort of walked back a little bit, but not really. I mean, because the core setups he's saying are just too monotonous, too easy, too much of the same stuff. Um, it it seems like that is still rewarded. But but what you're saying is that there's always going to be... Play- so does the field player have a less margin for error in in terms of being able to score, whereas the bomb and gouge player is going to give themselves more opportunities and so they, they don't have to be quite as good, if you know what I'm saying?
1: So, and th- this is what I say about a lot of the young players that hit it really far. They They know how to hit a golf ball really well. Mm-hmm. And they know how to hit a golf ball so well... All the other stuff doesn't matter. Like if I, if I could hit it 340 yards, nearly dead straight every single time, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to think when I played golf either because mm-hmm. I'm hitting a flip wedge into half the, half the par fours. I'm hitting a mid to long iron into half the par fives because I'm taking over corners. The hard part with golf course architecture and design that I don't understand is a lot of times as a player that flies at 270 to 280 like I do, um, I'm hitting it to the m- narrowest part of the hole. Yeah, at all times, and I'm hitting it in between two bunkers at an angle, and I have like 18 yards wide to hit my driver. Your, your this target space. is
0: significantly smaller, and
1: those bunkers are stabbing at 290, 295, and everybody that can fly it that far. Mm-hmm. Now has 60 yards to hit it in. Maybe not in the fairway, but they're hitting it so much farther down there, it might as well be in the fairway. And for some reason, I don't know why every hole starts going back downhill at about 290, mm-hmm. and it goes uphill till about 290 every single time. It's a very, there's Thank some you really very much, strange Thank you very much. architectural things that I've noticed. And that's all I would like to see as golf course architecture progresses. It's not that it needs to be longer. I just want them to have well, to hit it in the same space that I have to hit it into at 320 as I have to hit it into at 290. I want them to have the similar amount of trouble and the same amount of space to hit it in. That's The same that challenge, would, the same challenge to apply would, to
0: them that, it, that you face because, you know, this isn't a newsflash. You don't have the physique and the height and the whatever of Dustin Johnson and Tony Fino no. Your game is different. mm mm-hmm. And and that's the way it is. So I was at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference a couple years ago, and there was a paper that was shown about how golf courses were set up in the 80s and the 90s. And then they sort of put a flag down in 97, which obviously is Tiger takes apart Augusta National. And you see the lengthening, significant lengthening of golf courses. And what's interesting is that the lengthening of golf courses wasn't a problem for the big hitters. In fact, it punished the players who are average or shorter in length off the tee because now they're hitting longer clubs it's it's almost like they did it total the, the exact opposite of what they should have if you it would seem and I want sort of just your take on it if if distance is too much of a problem or if it's perceived to be too much of a problem then you want to shorten up some things to negate that and put more bend and curve into fairways to control ball flight so that great if, if you can you know throw the the you know really thread the needle with your tee shot at 320 mm-hmm. congratulations that's a great shot you were able to bend it around a corner land it in a spot but straight you know 570 yards is not helping you Dustin Johnson's li- and Brooks here are licking their chops at this yeah. and it would seem that they did just the opposite thing they should have to to alleviate the perceived problem would you sort of agree on that Yes, but do
1: you think they really perceived it as a problem?
0: Well, that's and that's really the rub, isn't it? Is <laughs> the
1: or did they like it? Did it all of a sudden make things a little bit more exciting? And do they? I'm not saying they purposely went out and changed everything to make those type of players uh-huh. win golf tournaments, but they certainly... But that like, style was point,
0: perceived to be entertaining.
1: Exactly, and they certainly made it more difficult for a player like me to win a tournament. Now there's a select handful of tournaments a year you know well, and there, that was gonna be my next question courses.
0: i'm not asking you to throw necessarily any venues or tournaments under the bus here but what are some of the ones that you let out on your schedule that you look forward to the most what What are some of your favorite events to play
1: um i mean they let's let's see i love riviera um it's again it's not crazy long Mm-hmm but there's what you talked about. There's there's enough curvature. There's enough angles. Um, it makes you, you think you have to hit proper golf shots. You can't just send it mm-hmm. over everything. Um, uh, Muirfield Village is one of my favorites. I feel very similar about that. Again, they're pretty big fairways, but there's enough angles and there's enough um, you know dog legs and stuff like that. And, and that's the difference. I mean, I do enjoy like a Hilton Head. I don't particularly play well there, but. You know, it's crazy to see that that's not a very low-scoring golf course. It's mm-hmm. the shortest one we play all year. Um, but it forces you to hit it to certain spots. You can't mm-hmm. just hit it all the way down there every single hole and have flip wedges in. There's some, you know, 400-yard part fours you kind of have to hit it over here to the side and have a eight-iron in mm-hmm. just for the angle and trees and that kind of stuff. Um, San Antonio, actually, which is a pretty long golf course, but I like golf courses that... Uh, you can miss it 10 yards, but you can't miss it 20 yards offline. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those golf courses that go. you can go ahead and hit it down there. But if you hit it out of play a couple times a day, you're going to, you know, it's it's costing you. And that's only about 20 yards offline on just about every hole on both sides. So, Are there are there any
0: venues where the tour no longer goes where you wish you could go back? I mean, I, I sort of think about some of the venues. And it. I don't know if, based on what you're saying, for example, if Castle Pines up in Colorado would have been one of those places. I always thought it was fun just mm-hmm. if nothing else, to throw a Stableford scoring system right? You know, into there. There's, in my opinion, not just not enough variety. Um, I think that there's a trepidation for some tournaments uh, or for the tour in general to mix things up. The fear, we talked about the entertainment value. If you've mm-hmm. got big stars that play in a tournament and it's match play, the folks at CBS and Golf Channel are not wanting to lose the biggest names and the biggest appeal before they get to the weekend. And mm-hmm. match play is match play. That's... You've got to earn your way through there, yep. but for me, adding that variety is fantastic. I think mm-hmm. real golf fans would love that. Is there any place that you wish we still went that uh, that's not on the schedule at this point?
1: Man, it's gonna take me. I gotta. Think well, did you used to play, for
0: example? Like, I would imagine that you would have loved Westchester Country Club, but I don't know because Westchester is sort of falling off the schedule. Right around I, the time my, when you were arriving.
1: That's where I turned pro,
0: actually. That was my very first professional event. What do you remember West about Chester? that first that first event as a pro? Uh,
1: I remember being very nervous. Uh, it was coming. It was right after the U.S. Open at that point. Um, did I think I made the cut at the U.S. Open as an amateur, and then mm-hmm. I turned pro that next week. Um, but... You know, it's just, it's different, you know, it's stepping out and like all of a sudden doing it for real, like for your job and for money and that kind of thing it was, a, it was a different uh, experience uh, for sure. But I enjoyed, I enjoyed the venue. I think, I think I only played there once. It might've been there again one more year after that.
0: I'll say the, I the, the first year of the FedEx Cup playoffs, Steve Stricker won the very first FedEx Cup playoff event. And that was at Westchester. Tiger skipped it. And the word on the street was, Tiger doesn't like this golf course. We can't not have Tiger in the FedEx Cup playoffs. Fincham yeah. was not crazy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, he ends up winning the FedEx Cup and skipping an event. And that began the let's start tinkering with the mousetrap thing to get everything going. And so they haven't been back to Westchester since. And uh, that's in my area. So now I know they're on the rotation with Liberty National. Beth Page is going to get some of that. Ridgewood Country Club. I would, mm-hmm. I, you probably like Ridgewood, I would imagine.
1: You know I do, but uh, haven't played well at Bridgewood. Uh, I've I actually played pretty good at, at Liberty. Uh, That's last interesting. Year. Yeah, it, it's it's strange the places sometimes you play good where it's like eh, it doesn't make sense that I play good there, but for whatever reason mm-hmm. maybe you putt the greens well, maybe you know the uh, maybe the tee shots set up well for me and end up hitting guys. I mean, if you do hit fairways, and I, it's not like I'm hitting it. 70 yards behind these guys i'm hitting at 20 to 30 yards behind them but but you're also in
0: the fairway three out of four times but i'm
1: also in the fairway so there are places and in the right conditions where being in the fairway makes a huge difference um one of those
0: conditions a little bit more than anything one of those places is going to be wingfoot next year and you won a u.s amateur at wingfoot what what do you remember about that course and and that experience that might help you when we come back it's been a long time and you're a different person but you've had success at that venue and not a lot of people can say that I got the better of Wingfoot.
1: Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's hard to say because it has been it's been so long, and I've I haven't even stepped foot on the property since mm-hmm. I've I've won there. Obviously, I've been up in the area a lot, and I've been tempted a couple of times to go out and maybe
0: it's still go really play.
1: good. Oh, I'm sure it's phenomenal. Um, I was disappointed; it kind of got out of the U.S. Open rotation there mm-hmm. for a little while, but was excited to see it get back into it. And you know, to be honest, I got some pretty hard work to do just to be in there so uh you know i hope i get to play there Mm -hmm. Uh, i hope i get to go experience it because i was i was injured shortly after when they had the u.s open there What was that 2006 2006 yeah i was i was injured uh, at that time so i didn't get to play that one so um I mean, experience is experience, and I, I doubt the golf course has changed that much. It's such a great golf course; they don't. There's have not to do a lot of need to, to it. change it, no. Um, so I'm sure it's going to be kind of the same place, and uh, it'll be it'll be a fun experience to get to go walk around it again and kind of relive, see how much of it I can actually remember from uh, the U.S. Amateur days, but. Uh, you know, from what I remember, it's it's great. It's straightforward. It's kind of that Riviera type golf course I was mm-hmm. talking about. There's there's nothing tricky about it. There's not hazards everywhere. There's it's, not, just, it's s- just right there in front of you and come get me.
0: Um, talk to me a little bit about how, over the course of your career, since you've had a chance to play Augusta National over of a, a longer period of time, how has that golf course changed, and how has the changes that that took place really a little bit more towards the the late 2000s, I suppose? How did that change? The way that you would play that golf course again a golf course that's perceived to favor players that are especially long there there's a second cut but there's really no rough to speak of the shot values are something that the augusta national is trying to maintain and they're maintaining that by by lengthening that golf course um we've had wet masters the last couple years or or there have been a few cold ones in there how does how has that golf course changed for you and and what are your sort of thoughts about about the masters
1: i mean first of all it's it's an amazing event, and it's one I really hope I'm in every mm-hmm. every single year. Um, it's just so it's so different. It's like uh, it's like trapped in time a little bit when to when you get inside the gates and uh, it's such a special place. And and honestly, a lot of what they've done, I I agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has changed a lot. Uh, there there's some holes I can think about, like hole seven, for example. Okay. Like used to be much more open um used to be like a three wood and then an eight or nine iron mm-hmm. maybe even a wedge if you got it down there you know now i'm i'm smashing a driver just to get an eight or a seven iron in there and it's trees on both sides and it's you really to hard to dead hit the straight fairway yeah, you if you have pull to be it at there. all it lands in the rough and you're behind trees like that went from being a very scorable it's, it was a birdie opportunity mm-hmm. the first few times i played there to now it's just as hard as number five, mm-hmm. like, which was always a very, very difficult golf hole. Even that one. Now they're making that even crazier. Right. Like I, you know, they're trying to, for me, I have to start trying to hit it right a little bit more so I can get it up top visually, hmm um if not you're down below and behind the bunkers and you can't see anything and you're hitting a 5 iron you have got green. a
0: long iron shot over those <sighs> massive bunkers to a green that's really sneaky tricky
1: it is one of the hardest on the golf course and one of the hardest to get it anywhere around the hole and you yeah, i'd be intimidated from a flat lie hitting a pitching wedge into that green to be honest instead mm-hmm. you're hitting a 5 iron half the time blind uh knowing you can't fly it on top or else you're just going to go over the green and you know so it's uh, it's changed. It, it's it's much narrower for the most part than mm-hmm. it than it used to be. I've heard I played there in two thousand three for the first time. I think it was my was my first. Yeah, 2003 was, or maybe even 2002. I don't know, somewhere around that. Mm-hmm. No, no, it was three. 2003 was my first one. But
0: some of the changes at that point are just getting they started. They were just kind of starting like, to
1: change it then. I th- think they started putting point,
0: trees down on 11. They
1: had started adding some of the trees and narrowing up yep. some of the holes. Like 11 was, is a good example of that. Yep. Um, I don't think they quite put the T-back quite as far there at that point it's it's buried it's, in the woods now it just keeps, it's so far back and but it's so tricky there because you show up and you don't you can't tell what they've changed because it looks perfect so you're like well, was this t-box here I what, remember, had they, did they move it back 50 yards and i just can't tell I made, am i going crazy
0: i made a point on monday this year of going out and seeing the new t-box on five and you go behind you know the the grandstand on four green which is a really fun hole and it's just crazy how long that hole now can play. I think they can push it to 240 yards, mm-hmm. which is – it's an unbelievable shot. It's, it's got to be one of the most intimidating shots on the golf course. It and is. That, that tee box now on five looks like it's been there since Bobby Jones you yeah. know, and Alistair McKenzie were dining the course. It, you mm-hmm. you can't know that that used to be a road. And its it's an unbelievable thing what they're able to do. And visually, there's mature trees all over the place. It's big stuff. Like how do you move – you know, a sixty-foot—I I don't know trees that yeah. well, but but it, it's been there forever. All mm-hmm. this stuff has been there forever. Yeah,
1: and that's that's what they do—they make it look like it, nothing ever happened, and so it does. It really does kind of mess with your head sometimes. You're like, well, I actually can't really remember. Did they just sneak? They are they just adding like three yards a year, and you just can't tell? And all of a sudden, it's all of a sudden your yardage five, book five, isn't five, worth ten. anything, yeah. and you're just
0: like, huh? So when you first came out, and I know we've we've got to go here in just a couple of minutes because you're here for, for a PXG corporate event um some launching of new clubs that I've seen but I'm not allowed to talk about and not allowed to to get into detail about um you were known again sort of getting back to the field play, but you some players scribble down copious notes in their yardage books and when you first came out I went back and, and was doing some research and basically you just you wanted to you said I want to know how far it is to the hole um but I don't need to know how far it is to a hump or a bump or a swale or whatever in there how much of that has sort of remained for you and how much do you sort of look at the modern yardage books? And I know that the USGA has come down recently a little bit on some of the green reading books and this, mm-hmm. um, how, how much of when you look around and you see guys going deep into the books, do you either have to just sort of shake your head or are you buying a little bit more now over time into it, There's some value in having a little more Intel scribbled in on the sides and in the margins.
1: Um, I, I, I'm still a field player and, mm-hmm. and I still like to basically just know where the pen is. I, the the problem is, is that with using too much information for me, it honestly kind of makes me lazy and makes me not pay attention to the golf course myself. Really? Okay. And I like to kind of visually try and remember a green, remember this or that. Now, am I going to remember it perfectly accurately? No, but I have a pretty good idea of about this, that pen. If it's here, it's about this, you know, far away from this slope or that slope. And mm-hmm. I kind of can still feed it in off of this or that. Now, I'm going to look. My my caddy always has a book, and, and I look at it.
0: Um, Steal a little glance here. Yeah, right like
1: I, I do check it out. But for the most part, I still just kind of want to know. Now, to a front pen, I'll ask for the uh, front edge of the green yardage, because mm-hmm. you know a lot of times there's false fronts, and you know being aware sure. of those that I need to fly it at least this far, uh, kind of idea. But uh, yeah, I I use it, but I still don't use it to the extent that a lot of other people do, and I, I completely agree with them finally cracking down on um,
0: just the you detail know, the, on the yardage, the detail books and, the, and, and, slopes and, the, and the, the lasered greens. I, I just
1: believe that's like that's part of the art of playing golf mm-hmm. is learning how to read greens and read them properly um and i I think that art has gone away and you just see a guy standing staring at his book at a piece of paper the whole time doesn't even look at the green and then just walks up and hits it yeah also i think that takes uh which i think the debate goes back and forth on which one takes more time um i think it takes makes because you're still going to go look at the green too, so now mm-hmm. you're looking at a book and you're walking around the green. Then you look at your book again, and then you go, you know, you do all this kind of stuff, and it just it's adding to time. And I, and I know pace of play is a, a it's big a, it's topic. a big issue at this point. Yeah, I don't know if it's a big issue, but I think people are making it a big issue.
0: Okay, um, do you do you feel that that pace of play is a problem on tour? Would you would you like to see pace of play quickened, or is it just? I, I feel this way, and and I sort of am talking on both sides of my mouth on this issue as. As a person, when I'm on the grounds, it for me, I feel sympathetic to the person who's playing with somebody who's really slow if they tend to play fast because they're nice. being taken out of their natural rhythm. And golf is very much a rhythm game. Yes. At the same time, I can appreciate that you're playing for a lot of money. And this is someone's livelihood. And if I were that person and this putt coming down on Sunday afternoon meant what it can mean... Yeah, I'm going to take my time on this. I'm going to. I'm not going to pull the trigger until I'm really confident that I know what I'm doing, and I get both sides of the argument. When you're out there, do you does it bother you sometimes the the pace that not just at the U.S. Open at Pebble where you know this is going to be a five and a half or a six hour slog, but when you're playing at a regular PGA Tour event, are they going too slow or is this something that the media sometimes just makes too much of?
1: Well, I think there's, there's a lot more factors than mm-hmm. uh, just players being slow. Now, I mean, the biggest issue with, with slow play is people just not being ready to play. Mm-hmm. Like, I, the people that drive me nuts are the ones that hit it 30 yards by me. They're not even in my view. They're standing by their ball. The whole time I'm standing there, I hit, I'm walking, and he gets out his book after I hit my shot and mm-hmm. starts looking at it. It's like, well, what were you doing for the last four yeah. minutes? You like, had so we much were standing time. standing there the whole time. Yeah. Just be ready to hit your shot. Like, yeah. that's if we're just all we're ready to hit our shot when it's our turn. Now, sometimes you can't. Like, sometimes you're right in the person's way. You got to stand 20 yards that's out of the way. That's pretty rare, though. But, like, for the most part, you can be pretty prepared, at least have a number, at least have other stuff. Yep. Like, if I'm second to hit... I already have my number. I already have my club. I have, now I'm waiting on wind for the exact moment when I'm stepping in there, which you're going to debate. But you're a not taking
0: bit. three minutes to finally step in there. No, pull like the trigger I'm, on this thing.
1: I'm ready to hit within a minute after mm-hmm. the, another person hit every single time. And I think weirdly enough, I think across the board, if they gave us more time, I think might actually be better. And I, and I know that seems How, very, that, say, explain that one. I, I think if they just went a minute per shot across the board, mm-hmm. And you just, I think for the guys that get wrapped up in it, they're almost like in their head about it. And it makes them like rush in a weird way, but it almost makes it like worse. And then they, I I feel like if they actually just expanded it across the board, you just Mm -hmm. get one minute and, and almost know that you're just on the clock. If you take more than a minute to hit your shot, barring crazy circumstances and moving stuff around. And that's another factor. I'm like, we got people, we got buildings everywhere. We got Mm -hmm. stuff that we end up against and we're trying to take, like there's, things that we deal with that most people don't. The biggest issue with pace of play is course conditions that we play in. We're playing on greens that are so fast you can barely breathe on
0: it. 100%.
1: We're playing in tough conditions, we're playing when long rough, we're playing all of this kind of stuff is what adds to it. we're playing 7,800 yard golf courses that we have to walk 100 yards backwards after every single green right. to go back to our tee box. We play on a golf course last week in, in Summerlin and in Las Vegas. And the first two rounds, I think we played in about four hours and twenty minutes. And on the weekend, we played two sums. We played in four hours.
0: Hallelujah! How
1: is that? that <laughs> how is there an issue with pace of play when you look at something mm-hmm. like that? There's not. It's about the golf course and well, the so, conditions more so than anything.
0: Again, getting back to the misconceptions as opposed to the realities. If you slowed the greens down, pace of play quickens. Oh yeah. There, it's one of those things where people just there's, again. I I don't know That's necessarily the monotony of it, but I think that there is a perceived, like, the greens from week to week need to be almost, like, maintained at a certain speed. And they've got nothing but tucking the pins more. The greens have gotten firm. Agronomy has made it so that they can keep grass so velvety smooth at Mm -hmm. such a pace. And some of these places, you had mentioned Liberty National, like, you're bearing a Buick on every green. So there's Mm -hmm. so much movement and so much speed. There is. And we're we're hitting – the
1: reality is with with the speed of greens is – you just don't have tap-ins on right. greens that are rolling 12 and 13. All of a sudden, you hit a great putt from 20 feet. Now you have a four-footer coming back. Yeah. And a four-footer is very different than an 18-inch putt or a two-foot putt. For sure. You actually, like, especially at that speed that and there's a little bit of wind, like the yeah. ball moves with the wind on greens of those speeds. And, like, now you're just factoring in more stuff. And now you're treating that four-footer just like you treated that 20-footer. Mm-hmm. Or if you had an 18-inch putt, you're just stepping up and knocking it right in. Yeah, if the greens are rolling ten and a half or eleven. Now, I agree. I think we should have fast, you know, greens. I have no problem with that. But that's a big factor for the, yeah. why it takes longer. Like, yeah. there's guy you're just going to take more time on those putts.
0: Did you see? Um, there was a a video that made its way around both Twitter and um, Instagram about a week ago. It was over the weekend, right now, we're, and and it was of Lee Trevino. Standing there by his bag, and I forget the the term where he was. It looked like a British Open, just from like the way that it was shot. But it was something mm-hmm. that was in the early 70s. And it took him about nine seconds. I might have it wrong. It might have been like literally like 11 seconds. Standing with the caddy, reaches in, pulls out what looks like a five-wood, tosses the head cover back down, steps in, one waggle, bang. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, you know, th- this is what it looks like to play ready golf. I mean, there wasn't... It was a different time, but it was something to sort of see when it's, you, you've had some players who have gone through and it's like three, four minutes for a putt. You're like, oh, my God, this is glacial. The thing of it is, though, for the person who's on te- watching it on television, they don't see it yeah. because CBS and Golf Channel are cutting to different action. Let's right. go back and show you this, what happened 30 seconds ago. So right. pace of play is, is an issue for you as a competitor, it's it's an issue potentially for people who are spectators because they want to see action, um, yeah. but it doesn't seem to really be a big problem with with the television broadcast. Um, is there? I mean, you sort of mentioned like that. Do, do you think this debate that people are having now is a debate they're having basically in five years or in ten years, or is do you Ooh, think well, that at some point there will be a change that that's going to come to try and do something here?
1: And until there's Actual penalty shot consequences. Mm-hmm. It will never change.
0: Do you think that the PGA Tour can, has any motivation to hand out penalty shots? For well,
1: them? their their problem with and their their stance on it is it's, you know, even the rules officials. They're like, well, we're affecting somebody's life and their mm-hmm. livelihood by saying they took eight seconds too long. Mm-hmm. Like, really? Is that right? Is that, you know, like I get it. I, I see both sides of it. Mm-hmm. I. I'd, can't say it really bothers. I'm not a slow player. I'm I'm a ready to play, ready to hit yep. kind of guy. Now, granted, am I going to take longer on certain shots or certain putts? Of course. I mean, there's just some you get in a really tough, weird spot. Reality's I'm gonna changed. Take, I'm going to take my sure. time. But in the fairway on a tee box, I am ready to hit. I already mm-hmm. know what I'm going to hit, and th- those are the ones that kind of drive me crazy sometimes. It's like on a tee box, it's like a dead straight hole. You're going to hit driver on every single time, and a guy will still stand there, look at his book talked to his caddy the same amount like he had a 70 footer with four brakes to it Mm -hmm. you know like it's like it's just a driver what are we doing here? there's zero wind right now and you're just hitting a driver like why are we taking two minutes Mm -hmm. those are the ones that will kind of uh drive me nuts but yes i mean it's been a topic of conversation at every single player meeting on the PJ tour since i've been on tour and that's 16 this is my 16th season so um Will it change? Probably not, and mm-hmm. and I don't know if it should. But like I said, I think allowing almost a little bit more time mm-hmm. and just knowing you're almost you start the day on the clock so and almost giving a little bit more time, a little bit more freedom. But you're the reality yourself is warned before you. The reality start. is someone who takes 48 seconds to hit a shot mm-hmm. is not the issue. Now we right. have we have 50 seconds for the first person, 40 and 40 for the next two guys in your group. That's mm-hmm. how it works, right? The first person first person gets a little bit more time so it's not an issue if that second person takes 48 seconds the issue is people that take two and a half minutes to hit a golf shot that's Mm -hmm. the problem so i'd say you almost allow a little bit more time and allow a guy to feel like he has a little bit more time to take his time and process the shot Mm -hmm. actually i think in the end might weirdly make him go faster i don't I really do. I think it's like one of those like kind of counter-intuitive yep. kind of thoughts. But just knowing that you have a minute, but if you take more than a minute and a rules official sees you taking more than a minute, mm-hmm. you're on, you get a shot. Well, Something like that would actually change it. And if you were aware that at any point you could, you could get a penalty for it, mm-hmm. people would play faster.
0: Well, that person gets a shot. You get a big thank you from me. I really appreciate Absolutely. you giving me this much time, Ryan. Thank you very much. Thank you.